everything in Christianity points to this moment in time. So I thought it would be good to share some reflections on the resurrection that I have have had over the last six months, I'd say, in particular. And I've discovered it's been forming in my heart and mind, but had never had a way of putting it out um, until I began to um, read N.T. Wright. It really brought some clarity to my understanding of um, the resurrection because he puts it in a first-century historical context. Resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen in the 20th century. It's not a modern church event. It's a first-century Jewish event. And we don't think like they thought. We don't understand the way they understood. The impact the resurrection had on them, the leaders of Jerusalem said they have turned the whole world upside down. It was that big. So I'm going to share some reflections on the resurrection today. I hope you'll get something out of it. If not, hang on and listen to N.T. Wright whenever you get the chance or read his works. 1 Corinthians 15.20, Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are a couple of points that jump out at me in this verse, the first being Paul's emphasis on the factuality of the resurrection. He says, in fact... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is not a fantasy story, some myth drawn up out of the vain hopes of a messianic group that has lost its leader to the brutality of a tyrannical government structure or a corrupt religious system. No, this is an historical event, a happening. But we'll have more of that about that a little later. The other thing that connects with me is this analogy of fruit. Jesus as the first fruit. I find it very easy to connect with the metaphor and can imagine him kind of springing up from the ground full of life and hope. But it goes deeper than metaphor. There is, in fact, an underlying biblical reality taking place here, a replaying of an ancient event that has been emblazoned on the heart of Father God. But let's first take a look at the stage that this drama is being played out on. John 19, verse 38, says, After these things, these things being the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. I want you to kind of log that on the left side of your brain. Okay. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as in the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So this, this one who has become first fruits was planted like a seed, as it were, very appropriately in a garden. And I, I say that not because seed should always be neatly planted in a garden, you know, actually quite the opposite, the favored planting method in the first century agriculture, as described by Jesus in parables, was they simply took handfuls of seed and scattered it. Wherever it landed, if it grew, it grew. If it didn't, it didn't. You know? So this event, this garden event, is a direct reflection of a God story, a direct reenactment of God's wondrous techniques. We have to go back to Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that God, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. So God planted a garden and put Adam in the garden. Do you see it? God planted a garden, but he could not find a man to tend it. And this is so thematic of our inability to work our way into God's grace and favor. The prophet Isaiah encapsulates this dynamic in Isaiah 59:14. He says, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for the truth is stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness upheld him. So out of necessity, up from the very ground God had planted, God draws to himself a man to work his land, because he couldn't find one. A man to share his domain, to care for his creation. God did this with Adam, and then he says to him, what? Be fruitful. Be fruitful fruitful. And God did it again with Jesus, planted him out of necessity in the ground and drew him up as first fruits to be fruitful. The same dynamic as it is at work, only this time it emanates from heaven. In Revelation 5, we see this wondrous scene in the apocalyptic vision of John He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy 
to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to, or to even look into it. And I began to weep because there was no man. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look on it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Now, this is really awesome. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Wow. How's that work? How does a slain lamb stand? Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Ever wonder where your prayers go? You ever feel, feel like, gee, why do I even pray? You know, where are they going? What are they doing? What's the impact? This answers the question right here. God gathers them up before himself as incense. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You know what that says? By your blood, you became fruitful. You ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped worshiped and the seed sprang up to fruitfulness you see god provided the seed to put into the ground by sending his only begotten son to suffer for our sinfulness to be bruised and battered so that we could be healed and restored and to die a horrendous death in our stead so that we could have life And again, Isaiah proclaims it with such depth and power 800 years before the event happened. Listen to his words in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All of that is fruitfulness. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Again, it was God who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, formed the new man and rose him up out of the ground in that garden to be fruitful, to restore God's creation, to reconcile men's hearts to heaven, and to take dominion over the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of God. And the wondrous thing, about all of this is that it draws us into the purposes and graces of God by the simple act of believing, accepting, and obeying. Believing that Jesus died for our sin. Accepting that God raised him from the dead and obeying God's command to repent and turn to him. And we can do that with assurance because of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what exactly is the resurrection? Remember I noted earlier that Paul was emphatic about the factuality of the resurrection that it was, in fact, an actual event. Why? Why was Paul so emphatic? And what would the idea of resurrection from the dead look like to a first century mind? First of all, the emphasis is based on the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the bedrock of Christianity. You can do this equation. No resurrection equals no faith. No resurrection, no faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Vain simply means empty. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. No resurrection, no faith. Secondly, whether you, as the majority of Jews did, believed in the resurrection, or as pagans who 
had nothing in any of their religious belief systems that allowed for the resurrection. I mean, you could die and you could go to a different form of life in an entirely different realm of existence, you know, the underworld, or you could be floating on the river Styx for all eternity, and, you know, they had all kinds of places you could go, but you weren't coming back here. The closest thing would be reincarnation, but then you came back as someone, or if it was a really bad day, something else. You know, I, I believed in uh, reincarnation for about a week. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, I, I looked at it and I thought, well, well, I guess that could work. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. But then I thought, what if I came back as a fly? And, you know, I mean, that's it. It's over, right? So it didn't work for me. It didn't work for me too well. But either way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in his day was a shocker to all. Here's why it was a shocker for the Jew who may have believed in the resurrection, and and not all of them did, by the way. For the Jew, the resurrection was a one-time eschatological event. In other words, it was the capstone event of the end of time. And everything was finished. God would raise everybody all at once from the dead and judge them. That's how the Jew viewed the resurrection. And they expected nothing like it to happen before the end of time. There was no place in their belief for a pre-end-of-the-world resurrection. We see this in the dialogue between Jesus and Martha, just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave in John 11:21 Martha said to Jesus Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died but I know that even now whatever you will ask God God will give you Jesus said to her your brother shall rise again okay so there's the point of the resurrection your brother shall rise again now listen to her understanding of what he just said Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was a first century typical Jewish belief of what the resurrection was. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now hang on to that thought because I used to stumble over that all the time. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. But what Martha didn't believe, what she or none of Jesus' disciples could believe, was that Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who had come into the world, would have to die and be the first fruits of the resurrection. They could not see it. Even when Jesus told them flat out, they still had no framework in which to fit that fact until after it happened. Here in Mark 9.31, it says Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, that's how he referred to himself, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Right? Pretty easy to understand from this side of things, right? 
pretty clear statement, except they didn't see it as a statement because it didn't fit any of their belief system. But they did not understand the saying. See, what's this, another one of those parables that we don't understand? We don't get what you're saying. I mean, it's very clear-cut to us, but you have to understand it was not clear-cut to them. They did not understand the saying, and they didn't understand it enough that they were afraid to ask him for clarity. It was so far off the grid for them to think that he would be resurrected. Didn't work. So here's the bottom line. Jesus had done what no one had expected. You might say, well, there are all kinds of accounts of Jesus raising people from the dead. What's the difference, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'll answer by giving you a couple of recent real-time events. The first one happened locally here in Laconia uh, within the past two years. A local pastor about my age, but not quite as handsome. Right. What? <laughs> my own grandson turned against me. <laughs> Betrayest thou me with a hoot hoot? <laughs> uh, anyways, the local pastor had a major heart attack. Okay? You know, many of you already probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, his wife found him dead and managed to revive him, but he had been out long enough for them to worry about brain damage, so they induced a coma to let his body recover strength. Okay? So after a few days, he came out of the coma, greeted his wife, and immediately had a second major heart attack. Right? No. They again induced a coma, and again he recovered, only this time with no discernible damage to his heart or anything else. Right? So obviously God was at work, and he found an Obviously, a new appreciation for life and those people close to him. And I think it was about a week after he got out of the hospital, uh, we got together for lunch. And, uh, you know, he really had this vision of a a new focus in his life and things were going to be different. And after around two years, he seems to have drifted back into his standard pattern of life. Nothing wrong with the way he lived. It just doesn't seem like all he had hoped would happen has happened. He's just gone back into being a local pastor who's not quite as handsome as Pastor Dick. (laughs) So this man was not resurrected. I would say he survived death and was resuscitated. The second story happened several years back when missionary evangelist Reinhard Bonnke was in Africa as the keynote speaker to dedicate a new church campus there. It seems that the week before his arrival, a local pastor had lost the brakes in his car while going down a very steep hill, crashed into a brick wall, and was instantly killed. His body was brought to the undertaker, who drained all his blood out and replaced it with embalming fluid, formaldehyde. His burial was scheduled for Monday, but his wife heard that Bonke was at the local church campus on 
Sunday. So she went and stole her husband's body from the funeral home. (laughs) And dragged it to the church where she was spotted by Dick DuPont as a greeter uh, by a bunch of ushers and they, they went out and tried to stop her, but she in turn convinced them to help her. Right? Uh, she, she, she had a vision here. So, uh, so they took the dead body into the basement of the church and placed it on a table directly beneath where Bonky was preaching up on the main floor and began to pray. And sure enough, Bonky in his own evangelistic style, although unaware of the dead man, he didn't know this guy was down beneath them, unaware of the dead man beneath his feet, he made some kind of declaration and the dead man gasped for breath and came back to life. Uh, yeah, wow. Right? Now he's full of formaldehyde. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is a little more than resuscitation. But I have to say that this man also was not resurrected. I believe he was delivered from death. And although initially he had no blood, it had been replaced with formaldehyde, yet over time the formaldehyde dissipated. I mean, you'd smell him coming before you saw him. For like eight months, it's all, he just reeked of formaldehyde. That dissipated from his body and was replaced miraculously, by blood. Okay. So, really cool miracle. I know. Well, they are, but it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> this man also experienced tremendous life change initially, taking his testimony around the world, but as far as I know, he is back to being a pastor in Africa as he was before. Then there is Jesus. Now, Jesus was killed by the most professionally trained executioners in history. When the Romans killed you, you were dead. Because if you weren't, they got killed. If they failed to kill you, they had to take your place. So they were very professional and very thorough in their executions. And the proof of the death of Jesus is in a statement in John's Gospel, in John 19.34. I'm not going to read them, but they'll be up there. When the Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side on the cross, blood and water came out. This is empirical truth, proof of the death, and the medical prognosis is this, cardiac edema. He died of cardiac edema. Okay? His heart burst in his chest under the severe trauma, and the blood in his heart mixed with the clear fluids around the heart so that Jesus was dead. When they opened that up, that was the proof, blood and water. He had an exploded heart in his chest, cardiac edema. Okay? He was dead. There was no coma, no drug-induced state of suspended animation, just plain Roman executed dead. Put in the tomb on Friday, there all day Saturday, and then on Sunday morning, 
The third day, he is resurrected from the dead. And there are several distinctives for us to note. First of all, he has no blood at all. They didn't use embalming fluid. Actually, the technique of burial is two-stage. They put you on a shelf, and the lack of humidity in the Middle East, your flesh rots within two weeks. There's nothing left on the bones. After six months, the bones are very dry. They collect them, and they put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and they store your bones along with all your family members' bones in this big stone box. That's how they bury so Jesus is in phase one of the burial. Okay, remember, they've got 75 pounds of aloe and spices to prepare the body, and they've put them on the shelf. And I've seen the shelf where they put them. Okay? The only wounds he appears to have are the nail holes and the spear thrust wound, and according to John 20, 27. The rest of his body, which was severely scourged, beaten, and bruised, appears to have healed miraculously in the tomb. And if you've ever seen uh, the Passion movie, and remember all his flesh is hanging? I mean, and that isn't even a full visual of what he looked like after being scourged that many times. I mean, big strips of flesh would have just been dragging behind him as he walked. None of that was evident in his resurrected body. He can change his physical appearance in such a way that even those close to him do not recognize him until he reveals himself to them in a form similar to who they knew him as in his previous life or or before his death. We find that in Luke 24, 30, and 31. So he can be reflective of his previous life. He can emanate out of his past something that someone who knew him would recognize if he wanted them to. This is all what a resurrection body can do. He can appear and disappear at will, John 20, 26. And yet he can also eat solid food and be solid to the touch of others. He can talk with others and even reference events from his former life, reveal truths about himself and about those listening that has an immediate life-transforming impact on them. John 20, 28. But here is the most significant fact for us and the real distinctive of resurrection. Jesus never went back to who he had been. He never returned to who he was. He was, in fact, a new man, a new creation, and old things had passed away. So the tomb was empty except for the burial cloths, and that means that God had transformed all the organic matter of his body plus 75 pounds of aloe and spices to form the new man, Jesus Christ. Hmm. And he forms him as a new Adam, and his first appearance to anyone is as a what? The gardener in the garden of the Lord. 
God could find no man to tend the garden. So he took him up from the dust of the earth and placed him there. The new man, the new Christ. And that's in John 20, 14, and 15. Death is such a mystery for us, the living. And for those who don't know Christ, death can be a terror. Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So there is life after death. But more than that, there is life after life after death. You don't get it? It works this way. If I die, I go somewhere and live in the presence of Christ, right? That's what we call the blessed hope. Die and go to heaven, right? That's the free ticket, right? We got the ticket. All aboard. All right, going to heaven. I know Jesus. I'm going to get there. So that's life after death. But that's not the end of the story. You see, you're going to be resurrected one day into a whole new life. All of the organic matter that made you up in this existence, God will draw out from the earth and form you into a whole new person. And you will have life after life after death. After you experience life after death, you'll experience life after life as a new man. And we will be just like him after the resurrection. That's what makes him the first fruit. And we're going to be the apples that don't fall far from the tree. Okay? Job puts it this way, and the book of Job is the oldest known book in the scriptures. Many scholars think that it's pre-Abraham. This is what Job says in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last I will seek, I will stand, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my flesh has been destroyed, okay, after he goes into the grave and you know his flesh rots off, after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Okay? Job understood that there was Life after life after death. He knew one day he'd die, be put in the ground, he'd rot, that he'd go on in existence, and then someday down the pike, he's going to hear a sound from heaven and be reconstituted and raised up from the grave to look face to face on the physical body of Jesus Christ. Both of them new men. Life after life after death. When you die and, and go into the grave, it's not the end. It's like dropping into the birth canal. You're going to come out the other side. And won't it be glorious? For us who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have this blessed assurance from Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in death, if we have been united with him in death like his, and what's that mean? You know, we, we always think of he died so 
severely, you know, the, the trauma of his death, but it simply means he died as a man. He didn't have to die as a man. He was fully God. He could have said, oh, it's finished. Okay, take me down. You know, I'm different. He could have done that. He could have done anything he wanted. But he died as a man. It's given once to every man, once to die. He wants to die. So if we are united with him in likeness of death, we're all going to die just like he died. But here's the blessed hope. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You'll be able to appear and disappear. You'll be recognizable if you want to be recognizable. You'll be able to eat if you want to eat. But you don't have to. You can float around ethereally if you like. You know, you can go on long walks or just transport yourself instantly from city to city. That's what the new man life is all about. I think it's pretty cool. And I'm looking forward to it. The power of the resurrection, the hope of the age to come. Saints, we have more to look forward to than the fact that when we die, we don't just cease to exist. We're going to take a rest and then come back to a new kingdom life with all of our hopes and dreams realized in the mercies and loving kindness of God with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more anger, no more wars, no more rage, no more death, no more death. And it'll be glorious. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come, even as you did 2,000 years ago when you came to that corpse-filled tomb. Lord, your word says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Then awaken us, O God. Awaken us to life. Awaken us from the slumber of our mundane into the glorious life that Jesus promised. Abundant life. He said, I came that you might have life and life more abundant. O Holy Spirit, come and raise us up into that. May we never be the same beyond today. May we never look back, turn back, reflect back, O oh God, but always set our eyes like flint towards the purposes of God and the high calling of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the well-being of people. Bless us with your presence today, O oh God, and enable us to begin to live kingdom life now by the power of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you this morning, if you have never taken those simple steps of believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead and wants to be your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up right now. I'd like the prayer people to come up. If you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior and, and you're just feeling, yo, today's my day. Today's my resurrection day. Today, it's new life for me. I'm making the choice. I'm going into the tomb to come out in newness of life. I want to be a new man. I want to experience new life. You can begin that journey today. When you are born again, eternal life begins. You don't have to wait. You can start now.